Hadron Gospel Hour's Halloween Special. <laughs> Huh? What did I tell you guys? Uh, this place is sleepaway camp-tabula. Yes, excellent. I knew you'd dig it, Cyrus. You kidding me? I love that rip-off creep fest. Quick, guys. Pretend I'm holding a severed head and not wearing a stitch of clothing. Good lord. Inexplicably, 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay, good hustle there, Cyrus, but uh, what say we save it for the exercise, yeah? It would appear that Cyrus has chosen this particular character emulation to test the extent of his lung capacity. That's quite enough! Told ya! It's a creepy movie! Michael, while I admit I was initially on board with this novel team-building exercise of yours, I fear it may be a bit premature to predict any real progress in light of our recent stressful adventures. I think a nighttime storytelling sit-down around a roaring campfire under the stars is exactly what we need to distress, Doc. Also, I never called it a team-building exercise. That's all shoehorning on your end. Shoehorning? Preposterous! You had this outing billed as a team-building exercise from the get-go. Nope. But I figured you'd come along if I didn't correct you, so how's that for proof of concept? I would say that full attendance already constitutes progress, Mike. Well then, passive-aggressive false pretenses aside, now I really don't see the need for me Here to- Here we are! Site 237. That figures. Ah, isn't it perfect? And they already started the fire for us. Yes, excellent. Now what's this? Looks like a note for the management. We are most pleased to welcome you to Fire Camp Medeka. This pleases me. The management wishes to inform you that the entire camp is booked for the evening. While we strive to create a unique, isolated nighttime experience for all of our guests, we also cannot guarantee that other sites in close proximity to yours will not infringe on your individual experience. For instance, the adjacent site to the west of you has been rented for the entire week by a group of cloaked gothic choral singers. The North, a group of electronic musicians with a 4,000-watt generator and a 6 a.m. deadline. That being said, your enjoyment is our top priority. Seriously. Maybe you've never heard that before, but you should have, because it's true. Should you have any issues whatsoever, please do not hesitate to call us at... The number's illegible. No kidding. Ah, uh, who cares? It's pretty quiet right now. I'm sure it won't be a problem. I'm afraid there's already a problem, Michael. Ashley, a rift portal, please. Aw, uh, come ah, on, Doc. Good heavens! Doc, just give it a shot, would you? It's Halloween. Technically. Technically Halloween on our origin timeline. You know how I feel about these traditions. They're grounding. Oh, yeah! Nothing grounds you like getting nailed in the head with an egg or three filled with nair. Or a rock through the window and shaving cream all over your front door. Well, certain traditions linger in ways that... All right, fine. Let's get this over with. Yay! Yay! Okay, so here's the plan. Each of us will take a turn telling a story near and dear to their hearts. Something spooky, scary, dark. I got one! And? And then we all have to guess if it's something that really happened to you or if it's all just made up. Very well. Who here has the honor to usher in this new tradition of narrative shame, I wonder? Mike. What? Did you roll an M? Nice. Okay, guys, get comfortable. Here goes. <clears throat> I grew up in the semi-sleepy suburb of Meldon. As far as I was concerned, it was a perfect Halloween town. As soon as the sun started to set, we would don our costumes, grab our bags and backpacks, and head out into the side streets and cul-de-sacs of our temporarily haunted neighborhood. 
Huh. Musical accompaniment. Not bad. The thrill of being out so late during our flashlight odyssey far exceeded the hindrance of adult chaperones. As time went on, and as curfews began to fade, we got more ambitious with our nocturnal explorations. Cyrus, you have your hand up. I, I assume that means you have a question? Oh! I was unaware that questions were encouraged during the storytelling. Not. They're not encouraged. So, what's up with these chaperones? Were they, like, stayed appointed, or were they just always around or something? Parents. They were parents. Ah. Oh. Huh. Query, is the biological component a significant requirement of this guardianship program you mentioned? It isn't. And again, question's not encouraged. Oh, this is already going so well. So anyways... We weren't content to timidly rush past the old abandoned house in the hill like we did when we were younger. We wanted to venture inside, so we did. Each location bolder and more creepy than the last. Abandoned, yet occupied with a sort of foreboding electricity that beckoned us. Even though it meant that we would ultimately be a bit let down by the lack of actual paranormal occurrences. That never stopped us, though. Every town has its spooky spots, and by the time my friends and I turned 18, We'd pretty much explored them all, except one. About eight miles north of Meldon, in a town formerly known as Salem Village, was the Danvers State Asylum. Sitting on a massive hill surrounded by dying trees and neglected grounds, the sprawling complex was the ultimate haunted house. At a quarter of a mile long, with its gothic spires silhouetted against a bruised sky and hundreds of boarded-up dilapidated windows, the building was less a long-closed, once-overpopulated hospital for the mentally ill, and more a massive movie set for a film about Dracula. Actually, data indicates that there was a movie film there, Mike. A fairly well-received psychological horror film called Session 9. Oh, I saw that! Brad Anderson flick, super Got it. creepy. Also, uh, additional data not encouraged. Confirmed, Ashley. Other potentially apocryphal information regarding this location? It was the place of origin of the prefrontal lobotomy. Well, let's not forget the fact that this 19th century hospital also served as the inspiration for Arkham Sanatorium in Lovecraftian Look, mythos. here's an idea. Uh, how about we all write book reports about this after I'm done with the story? Yes! Oh, I'm definitely game for that! This pleases me. Print is not dead. Continuing. Anywho. One night, we decided to go and see for ourselves. We parked in a secluded lot about a half mile from the asylum. You couldn't drive up there because we heard they had security on site. Apparently, there were a lot of break-ins and kids getting hurt. But perhaps more disturbing was the rumor of dozens, possibly hundreds, of unmarked graves on the site. Graves? Yeah. In the hospital's heyday, it was terribly overpopulated. These poor, suffering folks were just dumped in this place by family that couldn't or wouldn't take care of them. The state was overwhelmed, so they would just disappear into the system. When they died, there was often no one to claim them, so... That's so... sad. This pleases. It was. It is. So, we made a pact before we headed there to steer clear of anything like that, even though no one knew where the graves were anymore. We had a small map of the area, but there was no cemetery. We really just wanted to see inside the building itself. To hear our voices echo off the ceilings and walls of peeled paint and crumbling plaster. To maybe find a fading mural or a discarded book or an old piano. Just to stand in a place that people forgot. That time overlooks. We started up the hill adjacent to the access road. It was a longer route, but we wanted to avoid any security. As we looked up towards the still distant but immense structure, we saw what looked like seven or eight darkened figures ahead of us. 
It looked like we weren't the only folks here tonight looking to explore the ruins. Not wanting to entertain any possible confrontations, we chose an even longer path through thick brush and some dense forest. As we got closer, a strange noise stopped us in our tracks, a sort of metallic squeaking noise. After a minute or two, the sound faded in the distance, so we pressed on. Through the trees, we noticed the other group a few hundred feet east of us as they passed by beams of moonlight. Something about their pace, slow and deliberate, it unnerved us. At that moment, my friend tripped on a small branch, falling forward through some brush and into the front courtyard of the asylum. It was beyond what we could have expected, looming ominously above us, grim and silent. Suddenly aware of a highly visible state, we looked to where the other group should be exiting the trees, but no one emerged. Leaves skidded across the cracked concrete as we continued our approach. We spent at least 10 or 15 minutes checking the doors and boarded up windows for an entry point. I would put my ear to the large locked metal doors and knock, trying to trace the sound as it faded into the unseen corridors. We checked our map. There was an outlying house just a few yards from us, across the gravel road that circled the immense property. The map indicated some sort of tunnel entrance to the main compound? As treacherous as that sounds, our desire to somehow get inside this building had reached a near fever pitch. We walked towards the location. As the house came into view, just behind it we thought we made out the shadows of the other group moving slowly away from it. Had they been inside? Did they know about the tunnel and found it closed off? We decided to continue towards the house. It was in pretty rough shape, covered in graffiti that ranged from the inane to the arcane. Part of the roof had collapsed and the boards were ripped from the windows. We all looked at each other, then silently resolved to enter the house. I started to hear the squeaking noise again, far away it seemed, but no less indiscernible. Then, as my hand went to grab the door of the small house, something fell and smashed violently to the ground. Something inside the house, right behind the door. We froze, our heartbeats in our ears, another shared glance. We would not enter the house. We started walking back towards the road. In our shaking condition, we failed to pay much attention to the squeaking sound, because if we had, we most certainly would have figured out that it was getting louder and closer. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a beam of light come to life and illuminate the forest to our left. The squeaking metal was very close now. We turned. It was a police car, headed our way. The spotlight was slowly arcing towards us. Frantically, I looked around for some sort of escape route. To our right, the impregnable fortress. To our left, a house we were not going to enter. Were we trapped? Ahead of us, in a patch of forest just beyond a ruined tire swing and rotting gazebo, we saw them. The figures. They weren't moving. Were they looking at us? Were they waiting for us to get caught? Panicking, we paused for some sort of indication as to their intent, friend or foe. An arc of light passed the house to our left, the squeaking wheel of the squad car so close. Then, suddenly, one of the figures slowly raised an arm, leaving it lingering in the air. A moment later, we were running, running towards them. We dove into a large patch of grass in front of the gazebo. A split second later, a beam of light brighter than anything I can remember illuminated the area above and behind us. It seemed to linger for a while, then mercifully moved away. The patrol car and its squeaky wheel continued along the road, fading into the dark. Allowing a moment of relief, we stood up, fully expecting to thank the others for finding a hiding spot for us, but they were gone. Throwing caution to the wind, we illuminated our flashlights and searched the spot for them. Nothing. The old tire swing swung slightly, 
but there was no other sound that would mask such a hasty exit of seven or eight people standing right next to us. As we tried to make sense of what just happened, my flashlight caught something on the ground that rooted me to my spot. Chills cascaded up and down my neck as I moved the light over several other objects next to it. Popper's graves. Dozens of them. Covered in weeds, each marked with only a faded number. After a few more moments standing there, I was overcome with a strange sense of guilt, of mourning, sorrow. We all were. We didn't talk about it, then or since. Without a word, we shut off our lights, made our way back into the forest, down the hill, into our car. Then, mercifully, we were home. Wow! Mike, I gotta tell you, I'm looking at this close proximity warning as more of a happy accident. The electronic musical accompaniment was quite pleasing. I'll say. Hey, thanks for the tunes, guys. Huh. That's strange. No so, in an effort to move things along, are we now to guess as to the authenticity of your tale, Mike? Oh, yeah, right. Uh, what's everyone think? Real or not? That better not be real. Jeepers creepers. I believe this tale to be an accurate telling of Mike's perceived experience. I also say it's real. Well, Michael, real memory or fanciful Spectrefest? I'm not telling. Come on! Hey! Zero sum game. Bravo. Who's next? I have one. Can I go? Go for it, Ashley. I'm looking forward to this. Okay. Many years ago, there was a middle-aged man by the name of Walter. Walter was a brilliant computer scientist working at an ARPANET-connected company. Walter worked closely with a team of equally gifted colleagues for many years, and he considered them to be his friends as well as his peers. Together, John, Frank, Thomas, Anne, and Walter worked on numerous computer-based projects that would prove successful and resilient in the very soon-to-be competitive technology fields of the 80s and 90s. Uh, a question? <sighs> I noticed most of the inhabitants of the narrative you are presenting have no surnames. So... Oh, well, I am merely suggesting that by including this information, it may lend some credence to the authenticity of... The names have been redacted in the records I am accessing. I see. Mike, is pacing considered important in this storytelling experiment? Yes. Yes, it is. Very well, fine. No further questions. Inter-office electronic communication was a vital tool utilized daily at the lab they shared. The integrity of the messages, as well as the language used, was of the utmost quality and standards. Every piece of information shared was cogent, thoughtful, and considerate of the recipient's state of mind. It became a trusted and effective form of communication, so much so it soon became the primary form of communication, sometimes coinciding with a follow-up nonverbal exchange, such as a reassuring nod in the hall or a consoling grip on the shoulder. They considered this sort of correspondence a natural extension of themselves, an artful privilege. When Walter's wife passed away suddenly in 1978, he found comfort and solace at the lab with his colleagues. Like many, he dove back into his work as a way to combat and filter the sometimes overwhelming feelings of loss and grief associated with the death of a loved one. For a time, this method proved successful, at least on the grounds of science and commerce. Late one evening, Walter had a breakthrough, a program that could revolutionize the way humans live and work, a program that had the potential to perhaps one day become self-aware. The sensitive nature of this discovery was not lost on Walter, but he just had to reveal his discovery with those he'd worked with and shared with for so many years. He opened his then ASCII-only mail program, 
Fully intent on starting a new email to his colleagues, he noticed something that gave him pause. The program indicated that he had a new mail in his inbox. He checked the time. It was 3.30 a.m. He was alone in the lab, surrounded by nothing but the sounds of computer fans and CRT hum. For a moment, he thought, were they somehow louder this evening? All of his colleagues were fast asleep, and he was positive, absolutely positive, that he had checked and responded to the last mail sent to him just one hour prior. Knowing this, he stared, somewhat bewildered at the number one on his screen next to the words, new mail. For what seemed like an hour, he stared and listened and went over the moment he responded to his last email. Over and over, unable to resolve his internal struggle between confusion, disbelief, and self-doubt without hitting a key, he did just that, opening the mysterious transmission. At that moment, he did something he had never done before, something he had only seen done in movies and television. He read what was on the screen out loud. The message read, Digital will be giving a product presentation of the newest members of the DEX System 20 family. The DEX System 2020, 2020T, 2060, and 2060T. The message went on to describe the architecture of the new DEX systems and several dates and locations as to where one would go to see these new products in action. Walter pored over the information in the message as though looking at a map or puzzle. They didn't use DEC computers at the lab. They had North Star Horizon CPM machines. The sender, Gary. He did not know any Gary. Pseudonym? He came up short on just about everything, except the fact that this had never happened to him before. He had never received any sort of communication that was so transparently unsolicited. For hours, he stared and pondered. He printed out the message on dot matrix several times, shredding and burning the printout at each temporary conclusion. His colleagues found him asleep and disheveled the next morning. Upon waking, Walter found that he was hesitant to share his discoveries from the previous night. Breaking nonverbal lab custom, his colleague Anne asked Walter if he was okay. Walter wrestled with the concept, then nodded slightly. Anne gave a reassuring pat on Walter's shoulder and went on her way. John and Frank each gave a similar response, but Walter found himself increasingly suspicious of the sincerity of their ostensibly compassion-motivated gestures. Walter realized that no one in the lab would ever walk away with a socially adroit medal. But these moments seemed particularly feeble. His suspicions only increased when he heard that Thomas had called in sick. Thomas never called in sick. The only times he did call in it was to accommodate his attending a biannual 25mm lead-based figure wargaming convention in town. Using and painting lead figurines, knowing that much safer pewter-based figures were now widely available in the market, was what passed these days as Thomas's concept of rebellion. And these conventions were the only times he exercised it. Regardless, Walter knew that the next convention was months away. Something was amiss. The next few days proved to be somewhat stabilizing for Walter. He chalked up his emotional response to the unsolicited email as a byproduct of his recent loss and got back to a fairly typical work routine with one exception. He decided to stay away from email for a few days. It afforded him an unexpectedly liberating feeling of detachment that Walter felt he could get used to, even though it meant he would have to respond to the buildup of emails he would undoubtedly accrue after this temporary respite. Emails possibly numbering in the dozens. Late one evening, Walter decided that it was time to finally share his breakthrough discovery with his colleagues. 
He felt invigorated by its potential and realized that he would need to gather the collective resources of the team to move forward with what was sure to be a life-changing technological concept. He knew that he would have to respond to the emails in his inbox eventually, but he made a silent pact with himself to write to his peers first about his program, knowing full well that he may need more than one hand to count the unacknowledged electronic transmissions. He took a deep breath and opened his email program. An icy cold gripped Walter's chest. The noise in the room seemed to take on an ominous, low-resonating industrial pulse. He had not prepared for this. The number next to the words, new mail, had three digits. How could this be? Had he fallen asleep for months? He checked the time on the wall, the calendar adjacent. 1978. Was that right? Could it be? He suddenly wasn't so sure. Walter's visibly shaking hand slowly tripped over the keys as he opened the first mail. He did not recognize the sender. The subject simply said, real estate. Walter's slowly watering eyes gazed at the body of the message, reeling from the ideas that formed in his mind as he read. This person, a, a Doug that uses perhaps intentionally a zero instead of the letter O for his name, seems to think that Walter has the means and the desire to sell his home for cash, as opposed to putting the home he and his wife lived in for 15 years on the market. Under normal circumstances, Walter would have dashed such an idea as folly. But this Doug with the zero seems to think that this proposition is one that Walter would entertain now. Why else would he be emailing, Walter thought. Why now? It has to mean something that it's happening now. Walter opened the next ominous email. This one had no subject. From Juliet. Walter slowly began shaking his head. It described obtaining certain common medications at greatly reduced cost. From Canada, no less. Walter's doctor had recently suggested some mood-stabilizing drugs in lieu of his wife's recent passing. Although he declined, he remembered the doctor's persistence. Walter wondered, had he contacted Juliet about his current state, breaking physician-patient confidence protocol? Where would his doctor get his email? There was no public directory. He would have to... At that moment, something hit Walter like a ton of bricks. A realization that filled him with dread. Something so terrifying. And yet, logically, it had to be true. Walter's colleagues sold him out. They offered his private address to these email predators, these thoughtless monsters that would use a perfect and pure form of communication to solicit, entice, abandoning decorum and integrity, to distract from the ongoing contributions to humanity Walter and his peers worked so hard to produce. He wondered, was he now on some sort of list? Walter shuddered. There was no turning back now. As he viewed the remaining emails, each containing less and less relevant sales opportunities, the loss became unfathomable. Who could he trust? Walter wordlessly answered his own question. He sent a request to the SysOp to delete his account completely. Then, possessed with previously unexperienced and dark resolve, he grabbed a nearby fire axe from the hall. For a moment, his gaze lingered on some of the pictures and items on his colleagues' desks, now evidence of a previous life, artifacts of faceless strangers. The axe crashed down on Walter's North Star Horizon CPM machine, sending sparks, plastic, and metal about the room. By the time the fire alarm triggered, Walter was already in the parking lot, soon to disappear into the night, alone. So, I'm guessing true? Affirmative. A plausible tale that one could imagine is quite upsetting on many levels for a human. Mate 3! 
I want to run back and delete all my internet browsing histories right now. Thanks, everyone. I was under the impression that the story had to be based on personal experience. Is is Walter some sort of alias? Come on, Doc. Who let the killjoy in? Far be it from me to reference the arbitrary rules set forth at the very start of this ordeal. They're more like guidelines, really. Fine. Bedlam it is, then. So hold on. Thomas must have been the guy that sold Walter out, right? Actually, no. Thomas had passed away from lead poisoning. No way! I assume this. Higsby, how about you? You got something for us? I am not so sure if I have the capacity to grasp the full concept of what you all describe as horror, but I do have a tale in mind regarding an isolated location, a troubled custodian working third shift, my meeting him, and the events that followed. Higsby, that sounds like the very definition of horror to me. Pray, continue. Affirmative, Doctor. Some time ago, on this very timeline, a man by the name of Ted was working late at the Large Hadron Collider Complex in- Switzerland! Everyone knows that! Actually, this particular complex was hidden away in Mountain View, California, largely out of the public eye. Ah, who funded that, I wonder? I bet if you Google it, you'd find out. I get what you're dishing out there, Ash. What was that about pacing earlier? Hmm, pacing. Ted was going through a messy divorce and took this third shift job in lieu of the pending legal proceedings. Also, he was going through a particularly nasty bout of midlife existential ennui. So he thought surrounding himself with, as he put it, nerdy science crap, would reignite his long dormant curiosity. One night, the LHC team proved successful in discovering and observing a Higgs boson particle. There was much jubilation. The data from the discovery was logged. Results cross-checked, and then it was time to take the celebration elsewhere. Apparently, this high-tech office was not unlike any other office. Once something truly spectacular occurs there, the human occupants cannot wait to congratulate each other and share their joy at a completely different location. By the time Ted arrived for work, the complex was completely empty. The scientists had vacated the premises and were honoring their recent achievement at a local oxygen bar. That's some serious partying. It is, though. As Ted went about his work, he noticed that some of the equipment was left on. Although he was hesitant to approach the consoles, he realized that he may not get a chance to see any of this remarkable equipment up close and in an activated state. Ted understood little of what he saw there, save for one large red button. Above the button was the word, Release. Oh! Don't do it, Ted! Almost immediately, Ted eagerly pressed the Release button. Come on. That's what they get for making those buttons red. The ground beneath Ted's feet began to tremble slightly. The air took on a different density and temperature as purple electricity crackled about. Ted had barely enough time to regret his decision before a bright glowing particle appeared suddenly and greeted him in his native tongue. Ted was now in the presence of a sentient Higgs boson particle. Quickly moving through somewhat painfully rote conversation evoking disbelief and probable states of unconsciousness, all of which I will omit here. I cannot thank you enough for that. Ted slowly realized that he had a limited window of opportunity. The scientist would be back eventually, but right then, he had access to a quantum creature that could possibly show him all sorts of secrets about the universe, reality, life, death, all that crazy nerd garbage, as Ted put it. Ted appears to be a real charmer. Ted inquired about the Higgs boson's capabilities, to which the particle replied, I can show you whatever you wish, but keep in mind, the things I am capable of observing are commonplace and somewhat benign to me. No human has observed the universe as I have. Ted acknowledged this and said to just start small. 
The scream that emitted from Ted as he felt every atom in his body travel at the speed of light in every possible direction at once was unlike anything the Higgs boson had ever encountered. He actually found it quite pleasing at first, mistaking it for an expression of pure bliss. As Ted's reconstituted body settled and his eyes began working again, he gazed at a stunning landscape composed of strange orbiting geometries and undulating colors. He could no longer discern the organic from the inorganic, alien in every way possible, yet there lingered a vague familiarity. Ted assumed this is what the dream of an infant was like. He closed his mouth, stopped screaming, and eventually formed a smile. This pleased the sentient Higgs boson particle, yet he urged Ted not to venture further. For all intents and purposes, he warned, the flesh is weak. Ignoring this, Ted begged to continue. He needed to see more. There are rumors that Ted's second scream wasn't as horrific as his first, but they remain just that, rumors. The Higgs boson recognized the noise emitting from his new companion as an indication of profound distress, and it gave him no pleasure. As Ted became more lucid and less screamy, he witnessed a much darker environment. Slowly floating translucent orbs set against an inky pitch. It seemed impossible to measure distance here, as the orbs floated near one another, they would discharge some sort of plasma-like energy, sending shockwaves of sound that tore through Ted. The vibrational force seemed as though it would grind Ted's bones to splinters. As powerful as it was to witness, Ted felt that a pattern was emerging. The further he went, the simpler things seemed, though no less imposing. Was there a secret to all of this that they were approaching? Was he on the verge of a discovery unseen by all of mankind? The Higgs boson particle caught the glimmer in Ted's eye, and it was unsettling. The man he met just moments ago was quickly fading, so we told him, I have now warned you thrice, Ted the human. This was of course true, but the particle was looking forward to using the word thrice in a sentence. He had not done so prior to this moment. It pleased him. Thrice fold. Ted would not relent. He had to continue. He was intoxicated with this ever-expanding comprehension. He had squandered so much of his life on a singular and simplistic plane of existence. Could he make up for all of that lost time? He had to know. The final scream rang out for a brief moment, and then... The next morning, the scientist returned to find Ted, sitting upright in one of the console chairs. Hollow eyes, wide and clouded, mouth stretched so agape his jaw was broken. He was gone. Inside, his heart still beat, and his blood still circulated methodically, but there was no mind to enrich. What Ted saw was more than he could possibly imagine, and he would never again have the chance to describe it, or anything else. Ah, uh, can you let us now? More information is needed. Ah, yes, right. Well, the Higgs boson particle actually didn't go anywhere. He just shrunk Ted's perspective down, Fantastic Voyage style, eventually to the atomic level. Had Ted possessed even a rudimentary education, he would have most certainly been exposed to microscopic photography and recognized most of what he saw. A cautionary tale. Nice job, Higgs. Yeah, I bet all that really happened, though. I will never disclose. Ah, merciful ambiguity. So, let me guess. You're the Higgs boson. Uh, this all really happened, and moral of the story is, uh, don't be a stay in school? I concede. You are correct! You seem to have cracked that case out of thin air, Michael. Uh, you can just say I'm gifted, Doc. Less words. Less accuracy as well. Uh, now you're just talking about yourself. No, actually, I was talking about you. You? No, you. You? No. You? You? No. You. Is it time out time again, boys? Yeah, you're right, Ashley. Oh, okay, ready, Cyrus? 
I bet you've got something spooky in that mysterious past of yours. Good lord, I hope not. Well, jeez, Mike, everybody's stories have been so scary. I don't know if I can come up with anything half as spooky. Well, that's a relief. But I'll give it a shot! Hooray! There's no way this won't be amazing. Aw, oh, thanks, guys. Well, you guys know how much I love my kombucha, right? Yeah, I knew it, Michael. Seems like kombucha'd be right up your alley, Cyrus. Don't think I've ever seen you drink it, though. That's right, Mike! I never touch the stuff. And my tale for tonight is about exactly that. I call it... The Mother. Well, it's getting late. Wait, are we titling these now? Someone should have told no, us. No, guys, we're not... Because I don't want to have to redo my story. No, 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 no. We're definitely not doing that. Thank you, Michael. Yep, all for you, Doc. So, The Mother. Why'd you call it that, Cyrus? Did your mom like kombucha, too, or something? Why? Oh, no! It's the stuff inside kombucha, Mike. Jeez, I thought everybody knew that. I thought the stuff inside kombucha was, you know, uh, kombucha. Oh, daybreak will be here before you know it. Well, yeah, Mike, it is. But the mother is what makes kombucha kombucha. Let's all say kombucha some more. Kombucha! No, I wasn't actually... Let me to... put it this way, Mike. You know the stuff at the bottom of the kombucha bottle? The stuff that looks like a spoonful of wet snot? Uh, yeah? That's the mother! Anywho, back when I was in my mid-twenties, I used to drink kombucha every day. And let me tell you, it's true what they say. That stuff really does keep you regular. Uh, do you see, Michael? Where's my yeah, flashlight? Yeah, no offense, Cyrus, but TMI. TMI? Like, uh... Terrifying mystery image? Close. Okay, Cyrus, so you loved kombucha. I was practically swimming in probiotics, Mike. Got it. Cyrus, can you try to focus in on the story? Oh, right. Sorry, Mike. So, like I was saying, I was just cuckoo for kombucha back then. And I drank so much of it that I thought, why not save some money and brew some of my own? I figured... How hard could it be? Fermentation's the most natural thing ever, right? Oh, sure. So, I got a big jug, one of the refillable ones from the co-op, because, you know, the environment. And I got a batch going. Then, the waiting game began. Five days. Five whole days. I was a wreck. I was probably also having withdrawals. And then finally, the big day arrived. My kombucha was ready. I put on the soundtrack from Legend, grabbed the jug, got out my favorite glass, and poured out a big draft of the stuff. But the batch was no good. So that's your story? A, a rotten tea mishap? Michael, you know I hate to say I told you so, but... Doc, come on. I'm sure that Cyrus... Um, is that your story, Cyrus? Of course not, Mike! It's only the beginning! <sighs> well, I for one am enjoying learning about the digestive properties of this exotic beverage, Cyrus. The orderly operation of bodily functions pleases Jesus me. Jesus H. Heisenberg! Language, Doc! Well, when I found out that my kombucha pooped the bed, I was just despondent. Five days without that sweet... Booch made me a nervous wreck, and I needed a fix. So I pulled myself together, cleaned out the kombucha jug, because you know, the environment. Ugh. 
I clean the junk, put on a fresh pair of pants, and headed out to the organic co-op to get a refill. I just started walking when I heard it. A gurgling, machine-like snarl. The low, throaty growl of a feral iron beast, mixed with a slow, steady scrape, like a zebra or one of those Voltrons. I looked towards the street just as it pulled up in front of me. It was an old crap box, a beat-up town car or Chrysler or whatever, dragging a muffler underneath. I think I stared at it for a few seconds before I noticed the people inside calling to me and waving me over. I walked over to the old jalopy. The kids were a few years younger than me. A couple of gals and a few fellas dressed like deadheads, but fresh-faced and all smiles. They were packed in there like a clown car. The girl on the passenger side said that she saw my kombucha jug was empty. And would I like to know where I could get the best kombucha in town? The real deal, she called it. They all laughed, a sweet laugh, almost musical. And I couldn't help but giggle a little to myself. I mean, I must have looked like a real hot ticket out there. What a riot! I said, sure I would. And she produced a Dixie cup filled with fizzy amber liquid. Now, my mom always said, never take a Dixie cup from a stranger. But I was so thirsty. And these kids seemed so nice that I took the cup and drank it right there on the spot. Oh, it was kombucha, all right. Amazing, cold, fizzy, sweet, tangy, and delicious. It tasted like sunshine, like laughter, like the first time riding a bike, like Indian summer, like a first kiss, like home. The car door popped open, and I jumped in. Squeezed into the back seat with those smiling kids, I saw that the inside of the car was even more run down than the outside. The fabric from the roof hung in tatters, exposing stained, crumbling foam. The naugahyde seats were all blackened and torn and the passing blacktop flashed through a hole in the floor. There was a musty smell that made me think of the part of the ocean that's so deep that light never makes it down. But the kids were so happy and smiling, and it was infectious. Onward the crap box cruised, the radio on, tuned to some foreign newscast. The announcer was droning on in monotonous German, or maybe it was Farsi. Every time I thought I recognized the language, it seemed to change, got slippery, wriggled away. The kids laughed at something the announcer said, a joke. I laughed along dizzily. The crap box cut through the old factory district, sliding along through a maze of dilapidated processing plants past unfamiliar landmarks and abandoned storefronts. The busted muffler gently echoing off of the buildings. The man on the radio's voice was soothing, and the kids were singing a pretty folk song, or hymn or something. 
I woke up to the soft thump of the car being eased into park. Weak shafts of orange light cast long shadows on an unfamiliar cluster of deserted shops. Almost sunset. How long had I dozed? Before us was an old bodega that must have looked pretty spiffy in the 1950s. But those days were long gone. Only some faded lettering was visible in the day's waning glow. A handwritten sign was pasted up over it. Mama Gaia's Yoga Emporium and Organic Tea Room. At the sight of the sign, my heart almost took off out of my chest. Soon I'd be tasting more of the real deal with my new friends. The kids practically carried me out of the car. They seemed ecstatic. One of the boys leaned towards me and smiling an angelic smile whispered that he envied me. I realized that I was grinning too. At the time, that didn't bother me, though now I know it should have. In one big laughing mass, we flowed up the steps and into the front of the shop. It was a makeshift yoga studio. Echoes of the old bodega remained. A crumbling checkout station standing alone. A pile of sale of the week signs. Some empty shelves pushed back to clear the floor space and that musty smell again. I thought of those deep-sea fish with that light-up thingy in front, the lure that fascinates smaller prey. Like a zebra, or that guy on TV who goes fishing with celebrities. My new friends hustled me to the rear of the shop, stepping over dusty yoga mats and around rusty temple bells. I found myself standing in front of a beaded curtain, The real deal's in there, one of the girls said. But we can't go in with you. The sadness in her voice made me feel bad for her. But at the same time, I felt special. Wanted! I went through the curtain. The room beyond might as well have been a million miles from the bodega. The room was wicked fancy. It was all dark polished wood and gleaming chrome accents streamlined and modern. I'm talking like Olive Garden Plus level. People from all walks of life were mingling, lounging on leather sofas. The word variety popped into my head and a tiny voice inside me responded with a pang of fear. But it was a small voice and I forgot about it immediately when I saw that everyone was holding these elaborate goblets. The real deal. It had to be. There was a long, ornate wooden bar to my left, and I practically ran over to it in my excitement. The bartender was finishing a long draw from the tap, and as I made it to the bar, he sat a goblet in front of me. I think I apologize for wearing white pants to such a hoity-toity gathering. But the bartender just smiled and nodded towards the drink and said, Don't worry, you'll be perfect. Again, that little voice peeped a warning. But it was further away now. And besides, I had it. A big cup of the best kombucha ever. Drink in hand and my eyes adjusting to the darkness I took in the sea. 
The wallpaper in the club was an Art Nouveau pattern. All swirling curves, like smoke racing around the room's edge. Locked in an intricate rhythm that suggested movement. And what was it? An invitation? Feeling a jangle of nerves, I quickly took a long gulp from the goblet. And all my pesky questions flew away. I might have shouted, the real deal is right! But either way, the bartender smiled approvingly and topped me off. I finished my second glass, and soon I was chatting, cavorting, and cutting up the rug like the bell of the ball. It was the kind of party where you feel like, at that moment, you're standing on a high mountain range. All of history laid out behind, and the future shooting forward, a trillion glistening threads arcing out into the black ocean of possibility. More kombucha for everybody! The music got louder. The room pulsed. Time became a memory, a thing that little mammals invented to organize their short lifespans into less depressing chunks. We laughed at the thought and let it go. More kombucha! We were all dancing, swaying, spinning around like action figures in the hands of a giant child. We felt free. The music became more ornate, more intense, and we moved with it. All of the different varieties moving in. One! The little voice, almost dead, showed me a memory of an insect trapped in amber. But more kombucha, and we were all chanting now. All of us, so alive, so real. Last bits of Kendrick and Shelby and Philip and Cyrus. Oh God! Filled with sunshine and puppies that a chant that oozed through us and around us. And still more kombucha, more kombucha to make us ready. We give to us, and us give to we. Mama Gaia, we are ready. It begins. We crawl to a corner that Cyrus must have missed. The source of the pulsating light. We see ourselves, our glory. Jelani's mask, ready to feed! Cyrus feels fear, but we have known this reaction countless times through the years. There, there, we are all here, together. We all move as one. We come home. We come home. The sight shocked me out of my kombucha stupor. Suddenly I saw the scene in vivid detail. A procession of guests. Days drunk on this profane communion, writhing across the floor and crawling straight into a giant, pulsating kombucha mother! I saw through its filmy, translucent skin like a jellyfish or a zebra and saw muscles, skin, and bones being digested in the heart of a living nightmare! I struggled to my feet, dizzy and unsure. The bartender walked toward me with another goblet. I batted it away. I lurched, off balance, through the beaded curtain and out into the dark ruins of the bodega. Nighttime. Outside, a flickering streetlight struggled to stay off. I ran towards it. In the flickering darkness, I tripped over a yoga mat and landed in a pile of temple bells and wind chimes. The clanging sharpened me up. I scrambled out onto the silent sidewalk. And I ran. I didn't know where I was or how to get home, but it didn't matter. I ran. 
and I didn't look back. I didn't dare. I could feel it behind me, back in that terrible room, wanting, hungry for me. I felt the thoughts like they were ours, mine. I ran, and I kept running. Finally, I reached the edge of a familiar street. Trucks, bread trucks, newspaper trucks drone by. Familiar sounds, real sounds with no wet stain of nightmare on them. I grabbed onto these like a swimmer collapsing on the shore. But still I kept running. That awful music filling every silence. That terrible writhing mass inhabiting every shadow. I reached my neighborhood, my street, my apartment building, up the stairwell, into my apartment, turning the lights off as I ran through the house, and finally slept in the corner of my bedroom. Even then, huddled there, I couldn't stop shaking. I felt it still, on me, inside me. It was then that I heard the sound, dimly at first. Was it my imagination? No, there it was, the sound of a beat up car, dragging a muffler beneath it, slowly circling my block like a shark. I sat there shivering for hours, alone in the dark with that awful sound. Exactly. 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 I woke up to the sound of a downtown Sunday morning in full swing. Kids playing stickball. Birds twittering in the courtyard. A neighbor's radio is sputtering with the recognizable lilt of NPR's weekend edition. I was in my bed. In my jammies. Was it all a dream? It had to be. Cyrus, you with your crazy nightmares. It was only after I got dressed and went out to the kitchen that I saw it. On my kitchen counter. It was the jug of kombucha. And it was full! Hello? 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 Say, uh, would you folks happen to know the way to the Foley Artist Convention campsite? Oh, oh. Uh, I think that's at Lost River. Next exit off 112 heading east. Oh, okay, thanks. Uh, sorry to interrupt your uh, storycrafting exercise. Nope. All right. Take care. Right. October's supposed to be off-season. Uh, anyways, nice job, Cyrus. Such as it was. We have yet to hear someone's story. Shouldn't we be wrapping up? Someone's being coy. I'm not being coy. I feel it is abundantly clear that this team story building... Storycrafting. A failure is still a failure by any other name, Michael. Failure? How is this a failure? Now, best intentions aside, Michael, we are accomplishing precious little here. Barely managing to produce some rather rote stories with fantasy and science fiction elements. Overpopulated entire genres at so best. So, your issue is with genres. As you well know, I am a man of science. Pure science. Parapsychology is a science. You have expressed prior affinity for that field in the past, Doctor. Of course, Ashley. More than an affinity, I'd say. A profound respect. A reverence. And weaving these apocryphal yarns for entertainment is, quite frankly... 
blasphemy to now, me. Now, come on. You're going to sit here and tell me that sci-fi and fantasy have no practical use? The driving force at the core of all these sciences is the scientist. I would go even further and say that the driving force is the Gnostic desire that compels these individuals. Sci-fi and fantasy are manifestations of that desire. In the struggle to know the ostensibly unknowable, sometimes you need to disconnect the tether and let the mind wander. Out of the box? Please don't use that term. Right. Finding corollaries in the unknown and the known to linger on the possible? I've always thought of sci-fi as like a fuel for scientific exploration, you know? Yeah, a lot of young folks sought careers in science from their love of sci-fi and fantasy. This is the great working! The great unworking, more like it. Filling in the gaps with fanciful speculation, band-aids from a limited tool set, True science acknowledges the consequence of premature conclusion, Cyrus. As someone who strives to remain profoundly in touch with their own humanity, Doc, I gotta tell you, these approaches towards a greater understanding of existence aren't mutually exclusive. Both forge pathways towards the same goal. Gnosis? Right. Very well. I may see your point. However, the tale I have will potentially contribute precious little Look, we get it. You're afraid. I beg your pardon. Scanning area and filtering for fear-based energy sources. Forgive me, Doctor, but I detect no clear danger in the immediate vicinity. Can you describe the source of your uneasiness? Hey! I think they put us up in a chicken coop instead of a campsite. Query, those are the types of coops with chickens in them, correct? Affirmative. I've detected one in the quadrant currently occupied by Dr. Oppenheimer. I see what's unfolding here, and I refuse to capitulate. Doc, there's no shame in being scared. We all get scared sometimes. Like little tiny chicken babies with scaredy-cat diapers on. Totally natural. What on earth would I be afraid of here? You're afraid that your story isn't any good. Seriously, don't worry My about My story? It. Are, are you serious? My tale is an exceptional story of dread, horror, and mortal terror. Were I to contribute... Contribute! 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 Very well, very well. S settle down. Here is my tale of woe. Some years ago, in the New England township of Cambridge... There was, and is, a venerable institution of learning known to many as the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. All? <clears throat> I'm just saying, it's, it's known as MIT to everyone. Mike, right? we've come so far. Fine. Shutting up. Like many aged institutions built by long-forgotten hands, MIT inherited, along with its numerous accolades and distinctions, a long history of superstition. Students and alumni embarking to other aspects of life would often share accounts of peculiar goings-on on campus that ranged from the mildly disquieting to the outright unsettling. Students gone missing in the labyrinthine tunnel system below the campus. Shadowy rituals overheard or witnessed surreptitiously. Ominous harbingers of nameless things. Many debated the authenticity of these stories, false warnings of spurious intent from previous occupants as they moved on towards likely irrelevance. This was a sentiment shared by a young and brilliant final-year student by the name of Wadsworth Triton. Wadsworth had long ago dismissed these accounts as apocryphal, and he secretly pledged to never participate in disseminating such nonsense in the hopes that they, too, would disappear from the mythos of an otherwise esteemed and solemn institution. Wadsworth sat staring idly at a small, green-tinted computer screen in a mostly unoccupied library. A horrific storm brewed outside, effectively stranding anyone foolish enough to linger at the Institute. Most had abandoned the now quiet halls for the holiday anyway, and the building seemed to radiate an unceasing gloom. The snowfall appeared perpetual, the wind forming towering drifts around campus. 
thereby rendering the streets and byways surrounding the institution very much impassable, forcing occupants to utilize halls and conduits normally meant for support crews and maintenance workers. However gifted and brilliant the young man was, Wadsworth had afforded himself no repose, for this night, dark and unwelcoming in its unredeemed dreariness, was the eve of his final essay, the importance of which cannot be understated, as it represented not only the culmination of all of his academic requirements, but his very salvation from a life most reviled, a paradoxical state of scholarly enrichment and interminable melancholy. The reason for Wadsworth's transfixed stare was twofold. Firstly, since early that morning he'd found that much of his mostly insubstantial focus drifted in the miasma of a half-remembered dream, a dream of which much detail eluded him, yet, nonetheless, left him uneasy. Secondly, he had just deleted his paper from the computer. He had no memory of doing so, no recollection of enacting the complicated series of keystrokes and pointer clicks required to do such a thing, and yet, here he sat, staring at a screen that should be filled with thousands of words, representing months of research, yielding nothing of the sort. In fact, were there something that most represented the exact opposite of such a manuscript, one might say this flat, illuminated green plane with a single blinking cursor might just suffice. One might say. Something struck one of the wall-sized windows facing North Campus, shocking Wadsworth back into the present moment. A branch? A bird, perhaps? No matter, Wadsworth thought, it was doomed to be swallowed up by the unrelenting snow in moments. As the reality of his missing paper sunk in, he considered the all-enveloping embrace of the elements outside as a possible remedy. Violently wresting his thoughts from his morbid departure, he arose from his chair with a terrible vigor and urgency. He would make way to the server room. Surely someone was there. These computers were all part of a mainframe, tendrils of a powerful digital beast, if you will nestled somewhere in the hitherto unseen bowels of this smothered institution. He glanced at a directory on the wall displaying a diagram of the surrounding buildings. Producing a writing utensil and a parchment from his robe, he drew a crude map based on the diagram, and then proceeded south to the center lobby. As expected, the doors leading to the courtyard outside were obstructed by the snow, as was much of the courtyard beyond evinced by the impotent floodlights that normally illuminate the area in such a manner as to emulate daylight. Wadsworth glanced at his map. He was in the center of what was called the Infinite Corridor. Glancing west, the hall stretched on towards the Great Dome and the main entrance. He knew those areas well, having frequented the silent library within the dome and passing through the threshold of the Institute many times, all the while silently hoping it would be his final egress never to return to this wretched establishment. He deemed it unlikely that the center hub that housed the mainframe computers resided there. To the east, toward the main campus, a machine-based noise echoed, fluctuating and distant. This, and the unmistakable aroma of recently microwaved Chinese takeout, compelled Wadsworth to head east. As he got closer to the source of the sound, he realized that it was being produced by what appeared to be a large floor-waxing device operated by a university maintenance worker. Wadsworth was somewhat relieved that another human existed on campus, yet a lingering uneasiness pervaded. The maintenance worker was a hulking figure, standing somewhere in the vicinity of seven feet tall. Also, his movements appeared mechanical, as though he were merely an extension of the device he wielded, rather than the other way around. 
he made several attempts to gain the workers' attention. To no avail, Wadsworth did not want to risk making his way past the machine without making this man aware of his presence, lest he become injured by the treacherous apparatus of the floor waxer. So he did what seemed to him as the only logical solution to the noise barrier obscuring his presence from the maintenance worker. Wadsworth pulled the device's electrical plug from the wall nearby. The welcome silence in the wake of his action was short-lived, replaced by a guttural rumbling. Wadsworth turned to face the worker, intent on offering a cursory apology followed by a brief yet vital locational inquiry. What he saw chilled his bones more than the frozen wasteland outside ever could. An eyeless countenance met his gaze. A twisted, disfigured horror stood before him, leering through darkness in that desperate moment just before one lunges. What manner of creature was this? A monstrous brute whose custodial activity surely belied its true malevolent intent? As predicted, the lunge occurred. In a fevered flash, Wadsworth raced east down the hall, his legs fueled by blinding terror, ushered on by the ghastly awareness of chasing footsteps just a few feet behind. He stumbled momentarily over a plastic container left on the floor. For a brief instant, perhaps in a heightened haze of psychological self-preservation, he found himself momentarily critical of the hiring practices of the university's human resources department, no doubt squandering tuition-based resources on subpar facility laborers. A ghastly noise behind him. Ahead, mercifully, an elevator door lay open, a sickly ochre light flickering inside. Wadsworth entered the elevator and mashed the button panel frantically. As the doors began to close, he realized that the ghoul's pursuit had been hindered by the liquid contents of the container knocked over, now covering the marbled floors of the corridor. The creature lurched to and fro like a sickening marionette, unable to rise. The doors closed. The elevator began to move. Wadsworth waited. He waited some more. The doors opened to a sublevel previously unseen, dark and foreboding. The only illumination provided from a battery-powered brass lamp hung to the wall. Wadsworth glanced at his map. There was nothing there to indicate his location. He could no longer hear the unrelenting snowfall. How deep had he gone, he wondered. Was there some clandestine combination, triggered involuntarily on such an occasion of much anxious dismay, of triggered buttons that brought him to this strange place? As his eyes adjusted, he began taking in more details of his surroundings. Along the northern and southern walls, stacks of impenetrable storage bins, some so decomposed that the unrecognizable contents spilled forth onto the carved stone floor. To the east, the elevator, a last resort at this juncture. Something along the ceiling caught his eye. Cables, bundles and bundles of plastic and copper strands running west. Surely these led to the mainframe he sought. Invigorated and with renewed purpose, he grabbed the lantern, lest he no doubt be eaten by some gruesome unseen horror, and followed the wires. The trail went on for several hundred yards, then stopped abruptly. The hallway ended at a recently and hastily erected brick wall. What manner of tactless deception this! The wires penetrated the top of the wall into the room beyond. Confounded, Wadsworth surveyed the nearby surfaces. On the ground, a metal grating. Nearby, a crowbar. He had little time to ponder the practicality of the placement of these objects, for in the distance, from whence he came, a sound, jarring and newly familiar. Though he could not see through the darkness of the hallway, he knew his fear to have merit. The elevator door had just opened. 
and perhaps more disconcerting. Something emerged. Wasting no more time, Wadsworth grabbed the crowbar and pried the heavy steel grating from the floor. A foul odor emanated from below. The person or thing that emerged from the elevator trudged and scraped closer still. Wadsworth descended. A slippery ladder rung met his foot. He continued, closing the grate above him just as something arrived at the spot above. Whatever it was, it lingered there, breathing, shallow and labored. Wadsworth made no attempt to raise his lantern to illuminate the particulars of this looming horror. After a time, the thing turned away and slowly shambled back towards the elevator above. A moment of relief gave rise to further exploration. The space in which Wadsworth found himself seemed to be an antechamber of sorts. Strange carvings covered the stone walls, etched in red ink. It must be ink, he thought. It simply must be. Strangely, Wadsworth recognized some of the characters. However alien, the language remained. Where had he seen them before, he wondered. Surely the very nature of these arcane scripts and the corrupt mind that rendered them was enough to discourage the accumulation of its vile lore. A single entryway led south. Along the ceiling, an abundance of cables, tightly bound and dripping with a noxious ooze, stretched south as well. It seemed as though all of the cables at the institution converged here, leading to the next room. From this room came a most dissonant clamor, a harsh concoction of sounds both familiar and terrifyingly foreign. Light from it cast shadows against the walls of the connecting hallway, peculiar, slow-moving shapes of indiscernible origin. Wadsworth had come this far. Surely he couldn't go back. The mainframe computer has to be somewhere nearby, he thought, equivocally. He raised the lantern and headed towards the larger room. Wadsworth could not have possibly been prepared for the staggering onslaught that accosted his senses. A visage of pure dread and horror. A large, dome-like shrine of unholy formation. In the center of the room, a pool of dark, churning liquid. Light flickered from underneath the surface, revealing movements of some massive, submerged monstrosity. The walls, covered in wires, all leading to the pool in the center of the room. Any other man in his right mind would run, but, but Wadsworth couldn't shake the feeling that he had somehow, perhaps inexplicably, been in this very spot before. Perhaps many times. How could this be? He wondered. Confronted with such a menagerie of nameless horrors, had he already lost his mind? Then he saw it. A tentacle emerged from the pool. Then another. Then several more. How many were there? And despite all this, why was he not running away? More emerged. It seemed as though the room was filled with them, soon to envelop all within. Instinctively, Wadsworth reached into his robe. His fingers detected something. A stone. He withdrew his hand and gazed at the hitherto undetected object. It was a stone, glowing with a faint, unearthly light. Warm to the touch, it seemed to beckon. This was Wadsworth's stone. He knew this, yet he had never seen it before. How could this be? Something else had emerged from the infernal pool. Something Wadsworth could not describe. Something terrible, just as it was in his dream. Uh, the dream, of course. He remembered this from his dream the night before. How many times had he had this dream? How many nights of restless slumber and lingering dread? The room was alive with noise and movement and volatile light. 
The stone was very warm now. The seething mass was almost completely out of the pool now. Wadsworth felt his arm reach back. He watched as his arm hurtled the stone towards the thing. The stone struck the beast. A gurgling, nightmarish scream erupted from its many mouths. The pool was churning more violently now. Tentacles whipped about with frightful force, somehow narrowly missing Wadsworth, who at this moment stared wide-eyed and rooted. Then, in one final blinding flash, it was over. A calm fell over the room as the pool settled and the noise faded. As far as evidence of the creature, none remained. Even the liquid had taken on a clean transparency. As horror slowly gave way to an almost unexpected tranquility, Wadsworth sat for a moment on the damp floor of the room. Questions remained. Was this creature an aberration of the Institute's mainframe? Was it siphoning its power? Perhaps even more unsettling, was it somehow powering the Institution? Were there more? As these thoughts drifted in and out of Wadsworth's consciousness, one dominant thought remained. He would request a transfer as soon as administratively possible. Now that is a heroic ghost story! Yes, excellent. Doctor, assuming that this tale is semi-autobiographical, did you ever finish that term paper? Well, in keeping with the statutes of our collaborative exercise this evening, let me just say that Wadsworth moved on to larger projects. That's totally accurate. Totally. Well, as far as I'm concerned, it is mission accomplished for an evening of spooky storytelling. Yeah! yeah! Time to skedaddle. I'm pooped. I'll bring Ashley's boombox back to the checkout area. I will accompany. I am eager to discuss the details and nuances of these stories. Me too, Higsby. The post-discussion is sometimes the best part. Sure is. Just ask Chris Hardwick. Sorry it wasn't the team-building dynamic you were probably looking forward to, Doc. No. On the contrary, Michael, I, I found this to be very effective in that regard. Yeah? Indeed. One that I believe benefited all attendees with equivalent efficacy. Nice. And I definitely agree. Quite elegant in its simplicity, Michael. It really is about creating a safe space amongst friends and peers to be open about one's personal fears. For instance, yours was about preserving integrity for the living and the dead. Uh, Ashley's was about... Um, Her creator slash dad. Really? Don't you think so? Well, now that you mention it, uh, surely it must be. Right? Uh, Higsby's story, uh, tinged with a bit of guilt. Uh, Cyrus's story... Impossible to tell. Absolutely impossible. Well, Doc, I'm glad you had as good a time as I did. And I'm even happier to know that you played text adventure games back in the 80s. What's this now? Infocom. Not sure if the name rings any... Doc, your story was unquestionably the lurking horror. I'm not entirely clear on what you're implying, Michael. Without a doubt. Lingering uncertainty remains... Okay, that's fine. I like to adult time make-believe, too. So oh, Now you're just making up phrases. And speaking of which... Thanks for the musical augmentations, folks. Much appreciated. Yes. Quite eerie and compelling. Many thanks. Hmm. Huh. Well, they really are selling this to the back row now, aren't they? You hear that? Yes. Run. Run. Well, that certainly was interesting. Anyhow, this has been the Hadron Gospel Hour Halloween Special. <laughs> 
Written by Mike McQuilkin, with additional material by Rich Wedworth. Starring Michael Atkinson, Kevin Harrington, Lisa McQuilkin, Michael McQuilkin, and Rich Wentworth. Crapbox car sounds provided by John Ballantyne of Campfire Radio Theatre. For more deliciously wicked episodes, visit HadronGospelHour.com. And please don't forget to rate and review this program at iTunes. Until next time, my ghouls, this is your fiend, Mr. Gormengast, wishing you and yours a happily harrowing Halloween. 